morning. Good to see you out this morning on this beautiful spring day. Did you see the flowers? Yes. Nice. If you didn't, look on your way out because they don't last long. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. 1 Peter 1.21. Today is communion service, and as is our tradition, uh, following the worship hour, a break, and then regather when you hear the music. No dinner today and no evening service. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. Andrea's number. Note on the deficit. Acts and facts are here for May on the foyer table. Are you game? We're going bowling on Friday night, May the 17th, from 6.30 till 8, at Gerlax. $3 a person per game, two games. Sign up on the helps board, which is right outside of that door, and we'll know how many lanes to reserve. Murder Mystery on a Train, coming June 7th. Fellowship Hall, 6 to 9 p.m. Tickets are $7 per person, coffee and desserts. Sign up on the helps board again so we can prepare for that. What else? Anything else happening out there? Thank you. Our scripture for meditation this morning is from 1 Corinthians. Read chapter 13.
Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless our service. George, would you open for us today? Thanks. Our Father and our God, we come before you thanking you so much for this opportunity to be able to gather with your people and to be able to bring praise to your name for all that you have done for us and your children. Father, how we pray that you would uh, be with those who are ill amongst us. And Lord, we pray for your hand of uh, healing as well as Father, we think of, uh, of those who are struggling with uh, ongoing issues as far as uh, their health and their life is concerned. Uh, we long to see our people gather and uh, to once again be able to rejoice together uh, in our God. We pray, Father, for your word today as it goes forth, that uh, you would give Pastor the liberty to speak. But also, Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be able to work within our minds and hearts that we can know who you are and then give you praise for that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. We take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number one. Number one in the brown. That is the first one. Number one. i 
first hand out of the box there. Yes, sir. What hymn do we have for us this morning? 404 in the brown. And um, do you have a reason for the hymn this morning? Yeah. Can you share it? Yeah. <laughs> um, just thought about it last week on our way home in the car. And for some reason, it's, uh, it's been uh, pestering my brain. <laughs> And especially the thoughts here in the first verse. Uh, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and righteousness. Uh, for us who believe that Christ is our only Savior, it just has a wonderful impact and encouragement to our souls. Thank you. You said 401 in the book? Thank you. I am... 404. That's my, I didn't know 401. <laughs> I was struggling. Thank you for saying the words because I was a little lost. All right. 404. I'm sorry. <clears throat> my bad. <clears throat> reading this morning is 1 Peter, 
first chapter, we'll be reading 17 through 25. It's 1887 in the Pew Bible. be me then, if I can get there. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the old empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have not been born again, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all, for all men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Ask God's blessing on his word. Will you take your brown hymnals again and turn to number 363, 363 in the brown. Three hundred and sixty three in the brown.
Our scripture text is 1 Peter 1, verses 17 and following. Last Lord's Day, we studied the truth taught by Peter that Christians are people born anew spiritually who are given the charge to love one another deeply. God's grace found you. God's grace drew you into Christ irresistibly. Such salvation was of God's foreplan and will. He moved towards us in love, and we reciprocated in love, loving him in return. Nothing of our own will made us come to Christ in faith. Once found and brought to Christ, God's grace changed us. Faith, repentance, these were given to us. We came to know the forgiveness of God and to enter his rest in Christ. And we talked about two great changes that grace makes in people when we're saved. Number one, we're given a sincere love for the brethren as opposed to phony love, which is basically self-centered. And secondly, we are given deep love from the heart. And so today I want to expand on this last point. We consider what it means to love God's people deeply. And then later in the message, how do, we, how do we get to that? How do we accomplish that? So let's pray and ask for God's enablement. Father, send your spirit upon us in a powerful way to teach us the truths that we need to know about loving one another deeply. It all begins with loving you deeply. And your spirit must do that work within our hearts. This we know. Pray that you will bless our time of study. Thank you for the beautiful day. We think it reminds us of the Son of Righteousness that has risen in our hearts. May he shine forth with the light that he is, himself declaring that he is the light of the world. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us see that light and be refreshed. Remove the darkness, the shadows, the cloudiness of our thinking, that you would be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. I want to talk today about loving God's people deeply. The first point in the bulletin outline is that shallow love will not weather the storm of persecution. Shallow love will not weather the storm of persecution. Right now in Sri Lanka, militant Muslim groups are killing Christians for their faith. And they're not giving up their faith to save their lives and to escape the genocide that is going on. I think about that. I think about, quote unquote, American Christians. Could American Christians have that kind of fortitude 
and steel in their backbone as a result of their Christian faith to resist recanting their faith if it would save their life. I think about that because shallow love will not weather the storm of persecution. Remember that the book of 1 Peter is addressing people experiencing great trials for their faith. That's what the book is about. Look at verse 6. It talks of Peter's audience suffering grief in all kinds of trials, says Peter. We can't even fathom what all that means. It's in all kinds of trials without Peter enumerating what those are. Now, much, much of this is due to the fact that these Christians, by their very rebirth spiritually, are now God's elect, verse 1, strangers in the world. Wow. Something radical has happened. You need to understand that this stranger status is not due to them being of foreign nationality that has moved some how into another region of the country, and so are now ostracized by the local population. That's not it. Now, that sometimes happens when people of foreign extraction move into an established neighborhood, and the prejudice of the people will not permit the foreigners to assimilate into the community. They view them as intruders, as potential troublemakers, as people who do not belong. That's the word we use simply because they are of a different race or nationality. But this is not the reason for the trials these Christians were experiencing in Peter's audience. Look at verse 1. It says that they were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. But if you check a Bible map, of that day, you will discover that all of those areas are in the landmass between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. So they comprise a similar, if not identical, people group. There are no racial differences, there are no political differences, there's few ethnic differences. These are Greek states now under the control of Rome, just like every other part of the known world in this day. So, the trials Peter's people were experiencing are not, they are not related to geographical location. They're not related to a different culture, a different language, a different race. No, no, no. None of that. Their trials are directly related to Peter's analysis that as Christians they are, in Peter's words, God's elect strangers in the world. Not just strangers in Asia Minor where they resided, but strangers in the world wherever that might be. So, wherever their travels might take them, 
There was no place on earth where they would fit in, be accepted, escape persecution. No. Why is that? Well, the nature of the estrangement is spiritual, not physical. It is philosophical, not racial, not cultural. The problem is that wherever these Christians might go, they would take their philosophy of life with them and their worldview or their belief system. And that belief system was so diametrically opposed to that of the man on the street. That was their problem. So firstly, shallow love cannot withstand Persecution. You've got to love deeply in order to put up with persecution. Secondly, shallow love will not comfort or compensate the brethren for the escalated hatred of the world. Jesus put it this way, the night of his arrest and crucifixion. <clears throat> He says to his disciples, if the world hates you, I want you to keep in mind, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and of course they did, didn't they? Yes. So if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. John 15, verse 18 and 5. I want you to know that Jesus explains the world's hatred as the same malignant attitude they had towards him. And for what reason? Because he was a Jew? No. Of a different race? No. Of a geographical region they didn't know or recognize? No. They hated Jesus for his teaching, for daring to confront their pagan worldview, which believed in many idle concepts of God and which endorsed a hedonistic lifestyle of immorality and greed and pride and power. Jesus also challenged the view, as popular now as it was then, that all roads just lead to heaven. And any belief system will take you there. In other words, Jesus' claim about himself was exclusive. He affirmed in the previous chapter that he and he alone was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man would come before the Father except through faith in him. John 14 Verse 6. Well, that didn't make him very popular. 
The religious world of Jesus' day did not like this exclusive claim, especially the Jews. They hated Jesus for this teaching. He says in John 15, verse 23, He who hates me hates my Father as well. And within context, Jesus referred to the mighty miracles that he had performed to substantiate his claims, to demonstrate that he was no ordinary person among them. But they acted in unbelief and they hated him still. And so he says, they hated me without reason. Verse 25. This Greek word, without reason, is very interesting. It's doreo. It means gratuitously. You know what a a gratuity is, don't you? If you go to the restaurant and you get a meal and you leave a $5 gratuity for the waitress that did a good job, it's a gift, right? It's a gift opposed to something that's earned, which would be wages. On occasion, someone will say, Here's a little free advice. And what follows we may well have preferred to live without because the advice was really an insult. Jesus is saying that the world hated him gratuitously. That is, they gave him hatred when all of his teaching and miracles should have solicited love. He had not earned their hatred. But that's what they gave him. It's the same with regard to Jesus' disciples, with Peter's readers, and with us. There's no good reason for the world to hate us or persecute us or try to eliminate us, but they do it anyway. That's what's going on in Sri Lanka. I mean, think about it. As Christians, we're, we, as Christians now, we are under obligation to do good to all men. Galatians 6 verse 10. We are under obligation to love our enemies. <laughs> to love our enemies. To pray for the good of those who hate us and would do us harm. To not return evil for evil, but give a blessing instead. 1 Peter 3 verse 9. We are further charged. Live such good lives among the pagans. I'm reading scripture. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. 1 Peter 2 verse 12. Now let me ask, are these reasons to hate people? They are not. And so like Jesus, they hate us without reason, without justification. Hatred is their gift, their gratuity to us for living a righteous life. And the persecution along with being unreasonable, which carries its own discouragement, can be in, and often is intense. 
Peter addresses slaves who are subject to masters. They are to render respect not only to the good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. 1 Peter 2.18. And in verse 19, he references the pain of unjust suffering. Wow. Verse 20 indicates that that unjust suffering might refer to an unwarranted beating. And in that treatment, they follow in the footsteps of Christ himself, who, verse 22, committed no sin, had no deceit in his mouth, yet was beaten unmercifully at his crucifixion, you'll remember. But he uttered no threats, he hurled no insults on his tormentors. Now think about it. this is this is this is not a snubbing at a, so, a social gathering. It is not a snide remark uh, made to you about your faith. It's not some belittlement. It's not a put down. No, this is intense persecution that becomes physical as well as psychological. Cruel. Hard to bear up under. Again, the writer of Hebrews acknowledges some of the trials that his readers had experienced. He writes, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest, in the face of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathize with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Hebrews 10, verse 32 and following. How'd you like to have your home taken away from you? what these Christians were enduring. Further, we go to Hebrews 11, the by faith chapter, right? Wonderful chapter, we love it. But in that chapter, the writer says of the believers, some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet not one of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Hebrews 11, verse 36 and following. Boy, how would you have liked to live in those days, in those cultures, in those countries, as a Christian? Now, in reading these very unpleasant accounts, the point I'm making, along with Peter, is that for God's people to experience these things, whether personally or as a compatriot with others going through them, 
we must realize that deep love for one another is essential because shallow love will not weather the storm of trial. It will not mollify the pain of the world's hatred. There's an expression people use. It goes something like this. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Let me tell you, with a Christian, it's more like this. When the going gets tough, those not tough get lost. Everyone slips into what I'm going to call survivor mode. So forget you. I'm looking out for me and mine. Paul experienced this. He writes to Timothy and he says, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. Six verses later, he wrote, At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and he gave me strength so that through the message it might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I, del- I was delivered from the lion's mouth. 2 Timothy 4, verse 16 and following. Paul writing to Timothy makes reference to some others same region and perhaps maybe some of the very people to whom Peter was now writing here's what he wrote Paul writing now you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me including Phygelus and Hermogenes may the Lord show mercy to the household of Anesiphorus because he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Second Timothy 1, verse 15 and following. Onesiphorus is an example of a believer who possessed deep love for the Apostle Paul. He didn't much care for whether his own life was preserved. He just recklessly searched through the cities, through the prisons, till he found where the Apostle was. That's deep love. Now, how does a person obtain a deeper love for the brethren? That's always a good question. Verse 22 says, we are to live and obey the truth. Live it out and obey it. Let me read it. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love... 
love one another deeply. Oh, we need sincere love. If our brothers and sisters are anything, they are people who, like us, love truth more than life itself. If it's true they want to be counted in, if it's not true, they say, count me out. And this is why Christians are experiencing monumental problems in our own country these days. Our politicians lie through their teeth to the American public. And every time we hear about it, we are more and more incensed by the lies and the hypocrisy and we speak out. Some time ago, we learned of computer hackers that broke into the private files of several scientists at the forefront of this global warming hoax. I'm calling it a hoax. And they discovered that these scientists tweaked that is, altered deliberately the data in the computers, falsified reports to make it appear as though the earth is getting dangerously warm so that the polar caps will all melt and flood us all. And of course, they want to use that impetus for cap and trade. which will cost you and me thousands to try and control global warming. I always smile every time I hear about this on the news. We're going to to control the climate. Puny man is going to control the climate. This same kind of biased reporting and deliberate lies have been used against believers whom we know cannot be saying and doing the things they're accused of because they are men and women who revere truth and truth purifies the dross of hypocrisy from our lives, leaving behind a sincere love. The more consistently you revere and practice truth, the more deeply will be your love for like-minded people. Liars and deceivers, those careless in what they say and what they do, will not develop deep ties with the Christian community. But you will if you work with purified motives, if you see through the deceptions, if you promote righteousness. Believers want to be on the side of right because God is on the side of right. And he's called us to the same thing, verse 16. But there will never be deep love for the brethren in people who have little or no appreciation for the truth. It all begins with the truth, being a truth speaker. And by the way, our text talks about love and truth being wedded together.
David put it this way, test me, O Lord, try me, examine my heart and my mind, for your love is ever before me, and I walk continually in your truth. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers. I refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, O Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. Psalm 26, verse 2 and 5. That's how he keeps himself on the straight and narrow. Paul, enlisting the traits of love in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, says it this way, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. John, when writing to his companion in the gospel, writes the elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Second John chapter 1, the first six verses. Or again, John writing to Gaius. The elder to my friend, my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gives me great joy to have some brother come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth. And how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater love, or excuse me, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. Third John chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. So what I'm saying is that time after time, we read that love for fellow Christians is rooted in the truth. They are partners with us in proclaiming truth, 
in living truth, in obeying the truth of the gospel, in promoting the cause of God, which is truth. We love them for it. And as you develop a love for truth, your love will grow deeper for the people of truth. This week is Pastors Fellowship that I'm part of. And we meet in Flint once a month. What do you do? You guys get together? Eight, ten pastors? Why do you get together? We get together, get it now, to hear a gospel message preached to us. Say, wow, what's that all about? There's such a love for truth that we want to be fed, reminded, taught, encouraged, rebuked, warned, whatever the Spirit of God has in mind for that hour given to us by a fellow pastor and that we take turns with throughout the year. What I'm saying is we never outgrow, we should not ever outgrow our love for truth, our love for the gospel, depending, not regardless of what, regardless of what your vocation is. What about this deep, deeper love? How do we obtain a deeper love for the brethren? Live and obey the truth, yes. But secondly, we need to confront and deal with fear by perfecting love. Why did those pets bothers me? Why did those people desert Paul when it would have been such an encouragement to him if they had come to his defense? We're not told. But in making a calculated guess, I would say that one of the factors at least was that they were afraid of getting involved. I mean, if they identified with Paul, then when the authorities came to arrest him and accuse him and try him as a criminal, they feared they would be implicated because of their association with the apostles. Isn't it the fear of reprisal that keeps people from stepping in and helping when another person is in dire straits? I mean, I read about it all the time. Reports have come out of some of our big cities like New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, even our own Detroit, of people who were witnesses to a crime being committed against another person, a mugging, a rape, even a shooting, and they will not even dial 911 to call the police. I'm not saying go out there with a baseball bat and try to chase the thugs off. Just pick up your phone and dial the police. They won't do it. Why won't they do it? 
the answer that comes back all the time is this. I didn't want to get involved. The real reason is they feared that the persecutors of the crime they witnessed would hunt them down, find them, hurt them in some way for calling 911. It is self-preservation mode. But in the meantime, the poor citizen on the street is being robbed or beaten to within an inch of his or her life. This is our world. It is a world without love. It is a world that has no concept of compassion. Every man is out for himself, period. There's no capacity for sacrifice in a loveless society. Now, in contrast, the Christian community is to be a model counterculture to what the world produces. So when we define love for God's directives, we do not minimize personal responsibility and maximize self-preservation, no. Rather, like Onesiphorus, we go looking for imprisoned Paul, throwing caution to the wind, leaving our fate to the hands of God, because a fellow brother in the faith is locked up in a jail and needs our help and encouragement. You know anything about Roman prisons? Well... They didn't serve you one nice meal a day or two meals a day or whatever. They didn't serve you anything. If you were going to eat that day, your family, your friends were responsible for bringing you any of the necessities of life. Or you didn't eat. What kind of prison system is that? A pagan prison system. So there's real danger. If you're going to be an encouragement to those so treated. But oh, love overcomes the fear. It overcomes and it wins out. We are not crippled by our fear because love is stronger. John puts it this way. We know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. And in this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. 1 John 4, verse 16 through 18. Perfect love gives fear a boot out the door. And it's that deep love Peter's talking about. 
and it goes so far as to sacrifice one's own personal safety if need be, that a brother and sister in the faith might live. Houses on fire. Second floor, the firemen have done their best to get everybody out. The parents are out on the street and they say, but, 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 our two-year-old is still upstairs in the crib. And the fireman says, well, it's just, I'm sorry. It's too dangerous for anyone. The house is about ready to collapse. And wham, off goes mom or dad through the door before the fireman can even get a hand on her to stop her. And she runs up the stairs that are on fire and into the room that's on fire to rescue the child out of the nursery. What's the matter with her? Is she afraid that the fire might take her own life? No, perfect love drives out fear. That's what's going on. She or dad are not thinking of themselves. They're just thinking of the love they have for that child that's in danger. Jesus put it this way, greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. John 15, verse 13, which is exactly what Jesus did, who went on to tell his disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command. John 15, verse 14. John, the one designated as the disciple Jesus loved, was there on that occasion. And so in his letter, John writes this, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. And anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. 1 John 3 verse 14 and following. The church at Philippi sent Epaphroditus to minister to Paul in prison. And after a lengthy stay, Paul sent him back to the church to report on Paul's status. Here's what he says. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that you may see him again and you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor him like honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give. Philippians 2, verse 25 through 30. Now, we're not told what the details are here. But Paul is saying, you know, this guy 
you know, he risked his life to visit me in prison. Again, in writing to the church at Rome, Paul said, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Romans 16, verse 3, verse 4. Again, not told what it was. So in neither of these two counts are we told how Epaphroditus and Aquila and Priscilla risked their lives for Paul. We're not told. But it had some connection with their being with him and ministering to him while he himself was being persecuted for his faith. Now it isn't rocket science for the world to figure out that the people bringing food and clothing and encouragement to an enemy of the state must themselves be of the same stripe as the prisoner. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. Yet even so, Jesus alerts us to the coming day, saying in the Revelation, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 2, verse 10. And even with that being a reality, the writer of Hebrews exhorts us, Keep on loving each other as brothers, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoner. And those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Hebrews 13, verse 1 and following. I want you to observe that in all of these texts that the people are characterized by love actions, not just love feelings, not just love words. John writes here, children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 1 John 3.18 And the truth of the matter is that most of us in America do not have to concern ourselves with laying down our physical life for another believer. But brethren, I think the day is coming. I think it's coming. And in the interim, we are experiencing the kind of crisis in which John addressed in his day, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how, how can the love of God be in him? First John three seventeen. That's phony love. James saw such cold-heartedness as a matter of phony faith. He writes, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm, stay fed. But does nothing about his physical needs, what? Good is it. Same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. James 2, verse 15 through 17. What is he saying? James is saying, pronouncing benedictions and passing out well wishes, 
while a brother has no food to feed himself or his family, issues from both a loveless and a faithless heart. You're no Christian at all if you're doing that. So you see, these things are very serious. And they carry tremendous spiritual consequences. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. And anyone who does not love remains in death. 1 John 3, verse 14. I hope none of us are remaining in death. The person or persons you love most are yourself and your immediate biological family. I get that. But beyond that, you pretty much need to expand your horizons and see how to more practically love <clears throat> excuse me, the brotherhood of believers. When you're hurting emotionally... Do you seek out the counsel of pagan friends, family, fellow employees, but not your spiritual family? If you're strapped financially, will you tell a family member, but no one in the church must know? If you're having difficulty bringing discipline to your unruly children, uh, do you visit Dr. Phil and his cohorts? as your first line of defense. If you love God's truth, you have to go to people who know God's truth for help. And the help you give, if you're the one that's approached, has to be biblical, not humanistic. It has to grow more deeply than the superficial love so evident in churches where people remain disconnected from each other. Big churches are very popular with the masses because they afford a measure of impersonal, impersonal, and detached involvement. No one will put them on the spot. No one will challenge their thinking. They're just happy to be able to count them as a person that showed up. Neither do they care about your soul and the outcome of your life. Let me close with Paul's analysis of brotherly love from Romans chapter 12. This is wonderful. Paul writes to the Roman Christians, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. 
Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans 12, verse 9 and following. That's the Christian model for living. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray your blessing upon it. Help us to learn how to love deeply to the praise and glory of Christ and the gospel. Amen. All right, we're going to take like a 10-minute break, uh, and we will come back when you hear the music for our communion service. And there is no evening service tonight, so 10-minute break, and then come back for our communion table. What's that, dear? Gather on one side. Oh, yeah, that would help us. In terms of passing the elements. Ten minutes.